you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're continuing in our series. As you're turning there, though, let me add my greeting and welcome to all of you who are here for our CU Monday. So if you are here for our CU Monday, would you stand up and let us welcome you to Cedarville University? We're so grateful that you joined us, so glad to have you here with us. What we do typically on, uh, I guess they call it President's Chapel, I don't know what they call it, is uh, we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so this past semester and this semester, we are going through a different series. This series is on 1 Corinthians, and we have come to chapter 10. And so you are just joining us as I talk to our faculty, students, and staff as we look at 1 Corinthians. And so happy for you to join us, but just so that you'll know what we're doing, this kind of fits into the middle of a section that we've already discussed. In chapter 8, as we talked about in the last sermon, we talked about meat offered to idols and how that had implications for us in living our lives. In chapter 9, Paul made himself a personal example of the, of doing away with your privilege in order that you may do two things. Number one, in order that you may never cause another Christian to sin. And number two, that you may further the gospel. In a continuation of that, it flows over into chapter 10 and goes through the end of chapter 10. But sandwiched in the middle there, as he is making this case in this discussion, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, there's an important section that talks to us and breaks down into three separate ways. At the beginning, it gives us five benefits or five advantages that the children of Israel had. Then it gives a transition. Then it gives five failures, another transition, and five applications. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to break it down. And I've put some slides together for you just to help make sure you can track along with me. And so this is the breakdown of the passage. Now, as we read this passage, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Dear Lord, as we open your word and we look at it today, I pray that you would speak to us and help us to see how we may live lives that are sold out for your honor and your glory. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us 
and that we would listen and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. Yeah, I don't really remember the event. My parents have told me about the event. I don't remember it in great detail. But supposedly, I was a little kid at one point in time. Two, three years old in that range, and so you'll understand why I don't remember. And my dad had been outside working in the yard, and he had this chain that our dog had been on for a while, and it had moss all in it, and grass had grown into it. And he was trying to clean the chain, and it just wouldn't come clean. So he decided he would do something that's kind of manly, I guess, but maybe not the wisest thing. He'd light the chain on fire and burn everything out, right? Does that make sense? That's a good idea, right? And so he did whatever he had to do. I don't know. I don't remember. Gasoline, lighter fluid, who knows? And he lit the chain on fire, burned out all the stuff that was inside the chain. And so then he put the chain in the driveway and there's a red hot chain sitting in the driveway. Well, I'm inside. And my parents have repeatedly told me, stay inside, do not go outside. But it looks so fun outside. And it looks so appealing outside. And there's a little handle on the door that I had just been able to reach and hit and flip that caused the door to open to the outside. And so as I sat there and I looked at that handle and hit that handle, so I'm told, I ran out into the driveway to my dad. And as I was running, guess what I stepped on barefooted? (laughs) It's not really that funny. It hurt, all right? (laughs) The funny part's coming though. Just give me a second. We'll get there. I stepped on a red hot chain barefooted. Now, again, I don't remember the incident. I don't know if I blocked it out of my mind, maybe because it hurt so badly. I don't know what happened. But this is what I do know. I would not take my shoes off for anything other than bed from that point forward. Now, think about that. Three-year-old logic. If you're barefoot, you step on a hot chain, it hurts. Don't be barefoot. You fix it. Problem solved. Okay? Good logic, right? That's not bad for a three-year-old. But now think about the implications of that logic. When my parents and I went traveling and we went on vacation and the hotel had a swimming pool, I didn't take my shoes off. So yes, I was that kid at four and five and six and seven and eight that wore tennis shoes into the swimming pool. And all the other parents would look at my mom and say, he can take his shoes off, it's okay. Yeah, just hush, we know. every morning, I still, to this day, get up, you can ask my wife, I put my shoes on. I sit around the house, I have my shoes on. Because I grew so accustomed to having shoes on that it has affected the rest of my life. It has scarred me for life, if in no other way, than I don't like being without shoes. Now, I did, I do go to the swimming pool without shoes on now. I don't want you to think I'm that weird, all right? You know, when you, when you hit those teenage years and girls start looking at you weird, that's a really powerful enforcer to get you to take your shoes off because you don't want to be the weird guy that all the girls make fun of, right? And then there was karate and other things. But my point to you is this. I was warned, and I was warned repeatedly, don't go outside. You don't need to be outside. Danger lurks outside for you. And in that warning, I didn't listen to that warning. And all of a sudden, I gave in and burst into the craving or the temptation that was before me. And as I gave into that craving, I went outside. And sure enough, the temptation got a hold of me and I stepped on a burning hot chain and it has affected me ever since. Now, if that was at age three, I'm 40 now. 37 years later, there are still implications for giving into that craving and disobedience and doing what took place. What Paul is showing here 
is Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you have Old Testament examples that talk to you about how giving into cravings, they, they should teach you not to do that. And it gives you some negative examples. And he says to them at the very end in the application, take heed lest you fall. So let's look first at how he sets this up. In verse 10, chapter one, going through verse five, he gives five advantages. Now I've listed the passage right here for you. And so it says, for I do not want you to be unaware brothers. And you see the word brothers here. That means brothers and sisters. It means Christians. It means all of the fellow believers that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now here's what I want you to note. The word all is mentioned five times. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. So Paul is emphasizing in this, as you know, when you study and you see words that are repeated, you need to highlight those words or underline those words because it gives the emphasis of what the chapter is trying to get about. And Paul here is emphasizing the all factor. He's emphasizing the unity of what everybody went through. Now, why is he emphasizing that unity? Because when you get to the end of the unity, you realize that millions came out from Egypt, but only two went into the promised land. The millions that came out from Egypt all had a unity. They were the chosen people. They were the special ones. And so Paul's talking to people at Corinth who are prideful in their Christianity, maybe even a little bit arrogant in their Christianity. And he's saying to them, you don't have anything that's more special than what these people had. Look at what they had. When you look at it, he gives five different advantages. The five different advantages. They were all under the cloud. You remember it. They came out after all of the plagues and everything that had happened and they left and they ran and the cloud was there with them and the cloud moved to the back and shielded them from Pharaoh's army as he pursued and that cloud of protection guarded them. Can you imagine being amongst the group there, one of those that saw the cloud that led them, the cloud protected them from Pharaoh's army and they come and they approach the Red Sea and then the Red Sea parts and they're walking through on dry land. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Some of us today say, Lord, I really wish I could see something that special in my life, right? We want to see that type sign. We want to see the seas part. And here the sea parted. They walked through on dry ground. In this verse, it talks about, in this chapter, it talks about how they were baptized into Moses. Now, what does it mean when it says they were baptized there? You'll have some people that make the case that this is an initiation. You'll have some people that make the case that the water was real high and the cloud was over them, so it's immersion. You have all these different cases being made, but the main point of the passage here is that there's an identification that takes place with Moses. Just like when we are baptized, there is an identification that takes place with Jesus. We are buried in the waters of baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Why do we go through baptism? We're being identified with Jesus Christ. Here they were identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. You know, it's interesting. I didn't think about this till just now, but they grumbled and complained about their spiritual food, kind of like we grumble and complain about Chuck sometimes, right? You get the same thing over and over every, so maybe you can relate to what happened here with the manna that, that they would go out and they would gather every day that would be provided for them though. Now, don't trivialize it. Can you imagine waking up every morning, going out of your tent, and there's food waiting there ready for you that's provided by God? Can you imagine getting thirsty and having your leader speak to a rock and all of a sudden, or strike a rock and all of a sudden water comes out of the rock and begins to provide drink for you? Can you imagine seeing those type miracles take place? And this is the advantage that the children of Israel had. They had the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. 
And Paul doesn't just say it, is a spiritual drink. In fact, he goes on further than that. And he even says to them that they were followed by them, that that rock was Christ. Now, this is an important theological statement. Because if Paul was saying that the rock that provided the water for them was Christ, he's indicating here very clearly that there is a pre-existent Christ, even in the time of the Old Testament. And so here's an affirmation that Jesus is Lord, that the Christ existed before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, and that this Christ was the very rock that they drank from. But look at what he says there toward the end. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now that overthrown doesn't give us a good picture of what he's saying here. He's saying to the people at Corinth, they had five advantages, five times the words all mentioned. They all had these advantages. And at the end of the day, these bodies are scattered all throughout the wilderness. If you were to calculate how many people died daily. One of the calculations I read said about 90 different deaths daily all throughout the wilderness in order for that entire generation to have passed before they went into the promised land. All throughout the wilderness, there are bodies buried. What's Paul doing here? Paul's setting it up and he's saying to the people at Corinth, you also have advantages. And I'm saying to you here as the Cedarville family, we also have advantages. We have advantages, not exactly the same as what they had in the Old Testament, but all of us have been called out of slavery, just like the children of Israel were called out of slavery. We were enslaved to our sin. They were enslaved to the Egyptians. They were called out of that slavery and they had a leader that led them through and they were initiated into that leader just as we have been baptized and initiated into Jesus Christ. And they had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. And we have the Lord's Supper that we partake of. And we have there the body and blood of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, which is an advantage that they didn't even have. And so we have all these advantages. And then here we are. We're at a Christian university. We can open up the Bible freely and have religious freedom and talk about God and talk about the scriptures. And we can gather five days a week for chapel and we get to sing with people leading us like one voice. Didn't they do an amazing job? Let's give one voice a round of applause for that. We've got all these advantages. And you know, sometimes when we have all these advantages, we like to think we're invincible. We like to think we've got our act together. And Paul says, look at the five advantages that they had. And then he transitions. You'll see next, here are the five advantages listed for you, but you'll see next the transition there in verse six. In verse six, it tells you, Now, these things took place as examples for us. You'll notice there's another transition in verse 11 where it says, these things happened to them as examples. And you see two very similar phrases. So verse six, now the transition occurs. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Why are they examples for us? All of the benefits, all of the privileges, all of the good things that happened to them, and then what happens next? Here's your passage. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Sexual immorality, as some of them did. Put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Nor grumble, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Here you also see a they here. And so you have four some of them's 
one they, and you end up with one catch-all phrase that they desired evil. And then after the desired evil, you have four specific examples of where they failed miserably. Now, if anybody in the world should be able to stand and to succeed, it should be the people who were in slavery and in bondage in Israel, and they watched all of the plagues take place, and they left Israel, and they went through a sea on dry ground, and they were in the wilderness, and they had food, and they had water, and everything provided for them, but they're still not not making it. They're still not succeeding. It says they desired evil. And that word desired is craved, or some of your translations have lusted for evil. It means they had a passion and a desire toward evil. They were bent toward evil. They longed for it and they gave into those cravings. And we have four examples here of where they gave in to those cravings. And the first one says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. If you remember the passage, if you want to look it up for later, it's Numbers chapter 11. Starts in verse 4 there and goes through until verse 33. It's talking about where they craved evil and they had desires for evil. Let me just read Numbers 11, 4 to you as it talks about the cravings for evil. It says, now the rabble was among them and they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. So if I put this in Cedarville language, here's what they're saying. Oh, to get mama's cooking again instead of Chuck's. Oh, to have whatever it is. What is it you like? Somebody tell me, what is your favorite meal? Steak. What else do you miss? Meat. Cheese? Okay, I think they have. Lasagna. Oh, for mama's home-cooked lasagna. Oh, when we were back home, we had home-cooked lasagna and melons and I don't know what leeks are, but onions and garlic. And now our strength's dried up because I need mama's lasagna. And in Numbers eleven thirty three, you know what happened? It said, while the meat was still between their teeth before they consumed it, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and the Lord struck them down with a great plague. Psalm 78 comments on this passage. It says, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. Can you spread a table in the wilderness? And he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And when they tested God, God's anger flowed against them. When Moses went up on the mountain and the idolatry took place, it was there that Moses was gone. And they said, Moses, we don't know what happened to our leader. And so they looked at Aaron and they said to Aaron, give us, give us gods, give us idols. And so Aaron said, give me all of your jewelry. Give me your earrings. Give me your rings. Give me everything. And he took all of that material gold and he fashioned it in the form of a calf or of a bull. And that was the Egyptian gods. And when he did that, here's the, here's the line that just strikes me so much in Exodus 32 verse four. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They fashioned them with their own hands and they put them there and they created them. And they looked at the God that had saved them from the Egyptians, brought them through on dry ground. And then he turns to this and he says, these are your gods. And they fell down and worshiped them. So then here comes Moses. You remember the story, right? Moses comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he slams them down and he breaks them and he melts down the golden image that they have created and he crushes it up into fine dust and he sprinkles it over the water and he makes them drink it. That's some pretty righteous indignation there, right? But do you see why? How different is that though than us? 
trapped in my sins, trapped and enslaved into sin, and God died on a cross to deliver me from my sin. He died in my place, the son of God, giving everything up, living on this life, living a perfect life, sinless. He goes to a cross, he's beaten, he has a crown of thorns, he's naked, he hangs there and he pays the penalty for my sin and he pays the penalty for your sin and he gives me a way out just by asking for forgiveness and putting my faith and trust in him. And after all of that that Jesus has done for me, how often is it that I create little idols in my own mind? Whether those idols Idols may be idols of how other people perceive me or idols of material possession or idols of how we look or idols of any number of things that could attract you. And here we are. Do you have idols in your life? I think we all do. Is it ring by spring? Is that your idol? Would it cause you to compromise on what you're looking for in order to have what you think you want, rather than seeking God and realizing that Jesus is the only way that you can truly be content in life? Is it that grade that you need in order to stay in that program? That program that's always been the pinnacle of what you wanna do, and you compromise on that test in order to achieve that grade? Is it that sporting event? I gotta break into that starting lineup. And you know, I'm just not as strong and as fast as some of these others are, but oh, if, I, if I take a little something over here, it might help me. Is it an idol of even your athletic events? Idolatry. Exodus chapter 32, verse three, he speaks of that. Then he moves on and he speaks of sexual immorality. He says, verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, let me address the 23,000 first. I'll jump back and address the sexual idolatry. This is one of the passages that a lot of people talk about to try to demonstrate there are errors in the Bible. Because if you look at the 23,000 here in Corinthians and you back up to the story that it's likely talking about where they slept with the Moabite women, it says 24,000 died. There's about three or four different explanations for this. If you look back through church history, you'll see that Augustine and Christensen and others never even discussed it. It wasn't a problem for them. It never caused them any reason for concern. But when you move forward, you'll find that there's an early tradition from Grotius that suggests that the 23,000 was how many fell in one day, which is what Paul says. And that the 24,000 number is how many died overall. That's one tradition. If you look at Calvin, Calvin will speculate and say, Moses gave the uppermost limit but that here Paul gives the lower limit. And Bingo refines Calvin's expression there and says, think, for example, if the number was actually 23,600 and some odd. Well, then if Moses said 24,000 and Paul said 23,000, they're giving rough estimates, which are about in the same context. And so you have multiple explanations for the difference. But what you need to make sure you understand is that we have a faithful and trustworthy word of God that we don't need to doubt. There are explanations for all of the difficulties that some people would point to to try to undermine God's word. He says to them, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. If you wanna look back at this, write down Numbers 25.1. That's where it shows up in the Old Testament. And as it shows up there, you'll remember that the Moabite daughters were there and they had begun committing adultery. They angered God and he struck them down. And there was one of them that even brought the woman into the camp. And you have Aaron who takes the spear and thrusts the spear, spear through both of them and kills them. 
sexual immorality. Is that a temptation in our day and time? Yeah, it's probably a lot worse. In our day and time, not only do you have the temptation for sexual immorality with other people, you have that temptation for sexual immorality in a virtual world with a computer screen that seems to imply that you could have anonymity, that seems to imply that you could get away with it. But in reality, you know you can't because God sees all, God knows all, everything is tracked. If everything were laid bare with all the computers everywhere, there's a record of all that you've done. And even if somebody can't catch you, God still knows. It still affects you. Sexual immorality. And then they put Christ to the test. Look at what it says in verse 9. And we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, where they had gone through the Red Sea and then they wanted, didn't want to go around the land of Edom and they grumbled and they complained and the Lord sent fiery serpents and these serpents would bite them and they would, would die. And then Moses set up the serpent. You remember that he set it up and John 3 makes reference to this. So must the son of man be lifted up as a serpent. And so they complained against Christ. Do we ever complain against God? Do we ever doubt God? Is there ever a time in your life where you wonder, God, why do you have me here? Is there ever a time in your life where you wonder, God, I don't want to be here anymore? Depression sets in. Why does depression set in? It's because we're so focused upon the here and now that we're not focused upon God and what he did for us and we allow the trappings of this world to affect us in a negative way and we begin to look inwardly instead of outwardly and we begin to get depressed and doubt, God, are you really there? If we're honest, all of us in this room at one point in time or another have doubted, God, are you really there? It's the same thing that happened to them. He's given these examples He says they put Christ to the test, and then he moves on in verse 10. He says, nor grumble as some of them did. Grumble. Do we ever grumble? Anybody in here ever grumble? What do you grumble about? What do you grumble about? God, it's been 26 days since it was over 32 degrees. I don't know if that's the right number. Anybody grumble about that? None of y'all? I'm the only one? Okay. Well, there's my confession time for today, all right? What do you grumble about? Homework. You've got these professors up here, and they say they want academic excellence, but all I see is 80 hours of work in a 40-hour week, and I can't get it all done, and then they want extra papers, and then they tell me I didn't spend enough time on it. And there's an alt night coming up, and I really want to go hang out at the alt night too, but there's no time to have fun because of this professor, because that's just one class, Right? You there? What else do you complain about? (laughs) Chapel speakers. Somebody get the knife out of my back when we're we're done with this one. They're long. They're boring. We don't like them. They all want to talk about sin and the Bible. And God, why do I have to come to chapel five days a week? I guarantee you this. When I first came to Cedarville, I thought five days a week is way too much to have chapel. But then I went and started meeting all the alumni and I started talking to them and all the alumni said, if you touch chapel, we will kill you. (laughs) They said five days a week of chapel is incredible. And when we graduate, the first thing we do at 10 o'clock every day is miss going to chapel. So I hear you. But after I've been experiencing the five days a week for a while and the great speakers that we have come in, 
I see why chapel's so special. You've got the things you complain about. You know what they are. Let me move us on to conclusion. They grumbled. By the way, I'd written down, God is too cold, school is too hard, and I have too much work to do. So I think we pretty much got the right things there. Chapter 10, he continues on here, though, and he says, they grumbled, and some of them were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, look at what happens in the next section here. A transition occurs. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. Here's what I want you to see. Twice now in this one chapter, it says it was an example to us, an example to us. So you're reading in your quiet time, and you're reading through the Old Testament, and you're going through your Bible reading, and you think, gosh, why do I have to read all this? Why is all of this here in the Old Testament? Why are all these historical records and stories present? They're present for your example. They're present so that you will see the times that they failed so that you won't fall. You'll see how they gave in to sexual temptation, and it was destroying to them. You'll see how they gave in to idolatry, and it destroyed them. And by those negative examples, then you'll take a positive example and resist and follow Christ so that you don't experience the same thing. And that's why it's so important for you to know your Old Testament. It's an example to you. And here he continues on from there and gives us five applications. Now, the five applications, I've got them highlighted for you. Take heed lest you fall. All temptation is common to man. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide a way of escape. And then finally, flee from idolatry. Let me walk us through this real quickly. Here's what it says. In verse 11, these things happen for you and for your instruction. In verse 12, therefore, there's your, what's it there for? There's your conclusion. And it says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you're sitting in the audience right now, if you're in this congregation and you think, I've got my act together, I'm ready, I'm standing, I'm invincible. That's the moment when you are absolutely the most vulnerable in your life. It's when you think you can't fall, that's the moment you will fall. So the moment in that relationship where you think we've got this handled, we're not going to give in to temptation. That's the moment when you're the most vulnerable. The moment in your life, in every area of weakness where you think I've got it taken care of, I don't have to worry about any further temptation. That's where you're the most vulnerable. And Paul says, take heed to yourself. Watch out to yourself lest you fall. So why do we walk through this? It's because we don't want you to fall. We see the destruction that takes place when people fall. I don't want myself to fall. So I take heed to my own life to make sure that I'm watching myself so that I don't fall. There's none of us that's above falling. You look back through the history of the Old Testament and you name the greatest men that you can think of. And you go to Abraham and he had his flaws. And you go to David and he had his flaws. And you go to Solomon and he had his flaws. You look all throughout and you see flawed men. There's only one man that's not flawed and that's our God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And so we don't look to ourselves. We don't look to others. We look to the one who can be the righteous redeemer, who is Christ. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. You're sitting in here and you think, I'm all alone. I don't know what I'm doing here. All the rest of these people have their act together and I'm the one person in the room struggling. You are not alone. I don't care what your struggle is. You are not alone. And don't ever let the devil tell you you are alone in that struggle. 
Because what he wants to do is isolate you in that struggle and drag you down into depression and despair so that he can destroy you. Whatever that temptation, there are others in this room right now struggling with that same temptation. There is no temptation that is not common to man. And here what we understand are the same temptations that the children of Israel had way back when are the same temptations that we have now. And all of us have them and we can't fight them alone. We fight them through a fellowship and a community of brothers and sisters who come alongside us. We fight them through pouring God's word into our lives and having a prayer time with God so that the spirit can reveal things with us. We fight them by coming and worshiping corporately like we do here at chapel. We fight them and we fight them together, but we must fight them. He says, God is faithful. And he gives you two ways that God's faithful. Number one, he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Can I just be honest with you and vulnerable with you and say to you, that's a tough passage to swallow because I know how many times I've messed up. And if God doesn't allow me to be tempted or tested beyond my ability, that means it was my fault and my problem and my bad and my mistake. Because God allows us to have a way out. And I think in my own life how many times I've failed over and over and over again. And the Bible tells me that God does not allow me to be tempted or tested beyond my ability. And to me, it's just heartbreaking that I, just like the children of Israel, have failed a holy and righteous and just God who is faithful. Not only does it say God is faithful not to let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he is faithful to provide the way of escape so that you may endure it. Now, don't miss that. It's not to provide a way of escape so that you are never again tempted in this life. You will always be tempted in this life. It's to provide a way of escape so that you can endure the temptation that comes for you. God provides a way out. So next time you're tempted, what you need to do is look for the way out. You need to fight against it. You need to follow the example of Jesus. You need to flee from the temptation that's coming against you. You need to have fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters that can encourage you. You need to feed yourself on the word of God. You need to make sure that you follow all of those things. And if you have your Jeremiah study Bible, it's a pullout box right above this passage for you. Just those five things to fight, follow, flee, have fellowship, and then feed on the word of God. Here he says in conclusion, therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Here's what I want you to know. There's no temptation that anybody in this room has that's not common to man. There's no temptation that you have that you cannot overcome or endure by the power of the Spirit and by the power of God living within us. So you say to me, you don't understand. And I'll use one of my own weaknesses here. You don't understand. I was born a violent man. I love football. You get to hit people. I love the martial arts. You get to hit people. I love hunting. You get to shoot things. I love anything that explodes, goes bang, catches on fire. I love it. I was born a violent person. Anybody else in here with me? It's common to man. Not all of you, but some of you. So we'll form the I was born violent group immediately after chapel, right? Now, let's take that to absurdity for just a moment. 
What if some student came up and said, I was born a violent man and I like to kill people. I haven't done it yet because I haven't had the opportunity, but it's coming, there's a time. And so I want to be an advocate for killing people on campus. What do we tell that person? That's not okay. We like our students. You can't harm them. You can't kill them. You can't do that to them. That's not okay. Now, let me insert this here. If you're in this room right now and you're struggling with something and you're struggling hard with something, come to us and let us help you. Don't think I'm sitting up here with a desire to kick you out of school. My desire is to help you grow in godliness toward Christ, whatever your struggle is. I have a desire for you to be all you can be for Christ. It's the reason I'm here. It's the reason we're all here is to help you find the way of escape to endure the common temptations that are known to man so that you can flee from idolatry. And so it's not okay to say, this is just me, take me or leave me, this is who I am. I'm gonna murder one day eventually when opportunity is right. We can't do that. We cannot make peace with our sin. Whatever our temptation is, we have to war against it and fight against it. And we have to make sure we're fighting. We're looking to God's word. We're looking around to others. We're encouraging one another. And it's not that the temptation is the sin itself, but we can't even be okay with the temptation. We have to flee the temptation. We have to fight against the temptation. We have to look to see what God's word says against the temptation. And we have to ultimately overcome and endure any temptation because they're common to all mankind. Students, faculty, staff, I want what's best for you. I want what God's word has to say for you. I want you to understand that we are all in this together with common temptations. But that doesn't mean we make peace with those temptations. It means we make war against those temptations. Not in a legalistic way of setting up boundaries to keep us from them, but in a holy way of pursuing God, the only one who can deliver us because God is faithful. We pursue him with all that we have and all that we are. We spend time in his word. We love others. We are gracious to them, but we tell them too, it's not okay to make peace with your sin. It's okay to pursue after God with a holy ambition. The magnificent one that died on the cross that's coming again. It's okay to pursue him and that's what we have to do together. I want you to live life and live it well. And I want you to live a life so focused on the gospel that when you look back, you'll be thankful for all that Jesus has done for you and not have regrets about not pursuing him with every fiber of your being. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I find today's passage personally very convicting. Lord, as we look at all the advantages that we have and all the times that we still fail you, and Father, I just ask that you forgive us all. Lord, there's not a single person in this room that is worthy of what you have done for us, worthy of the grace that you have given us. And so, Father, we just plead to the mercy of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. I pray for our faculty, staff, and students today that you will help us to resist temptation, to flee from temptation, to withdraw and stand, and to honor you. And God, most of all, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are there. Even in the times when we fall and we come to you and repent, God, you are still there because you are faithful. So Lord, today I pray that you would help us to seek you with all that we are and to flee 
from idolatry. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You are dismissed.